Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd, I'm the Digital Media Editor here at Heart, and today I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Henry Savage from the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre, CTC, uh, in Basildon in the UK. And Henry and his team have recently written an excellent review paper, which is all about sequencing of medical therapies in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And the paper will be made open access for everybody to read and download. We have a great conversation about the barriers to getting patients to optimal doses of these four pillar medications and how they're tackling the problem locally in Essex. I hope you enjoy the show and please do feel free to leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. It's a great pleasure today to welcome Dr. Henry Savage to the podcast. Um, Henry has recently written, along with his co-authors from the Cardiothoracic Centre in Basildon, Essex, UK, uh, an excellent review paper which is called Sequencing of Medical Therapy in Heart Failure with a Reduced Ejection Fraction. Um, Henry, maybe we can start off by having you introduce yourself for the podcast audience. Um, Who are you, where do you work, and what do you do there? Thanks, James. My name is Henry Luashikumi Savage. I am a heart failure cardiologist. I'm a consultant cardiologist. I am also in plant cardiac devices. I work at the Essex Cardiothoracic Center in Basildon. Uh, so my day-to-day job involves looking after patients who have heart failure predominantly um, and deciding their therapies, deciding whether they need additional drug treatment or indeed device therapies where you know they may need that implanted, and I do that as well. It's a big population where I work in and secondary care and tertiary care hospitals. An interesting specialty that I think I, I enjoy doing. Fantastic. And maybe we can start by having you give us a little bit of background um, to the area of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We've had a few podcasts recently on HEFPEF, um, but this is an area with, I think, a lot more evidence, a lot more therapies that have been shown to improve quality of life, reduce mortality in events. Uh, but can you give us a bit of background and also the, the sort of use of the four uh, pillars of therapy uh, with for HEFREF? You're absolutely right. This is hopefully uh, with a reduced ejection fraction for the audience. You know, you're essentially talking about a patient who has got a heart that isn't essentially pumping as well as it should. So the heart should pump out just over fifty percent of its contents with each beat, and then any patients where that happens less than 50% to 49% all the way down, uh, something catastrophic has happened that has caused their heart to look that way. Now, uh, there's been, you know, we're approaching four decades, essentially, of research into this condition where, you know, certainly 50 years ago, the mortality for this condition was probably 50% over the first year. So one in two people who had that diagnosis were not guaranteed to survive the year. And in 1987, the first sort of group of drugs, uh, ACE inhibitors, um, uh, in the consensus trial, enalapril was shown to reduce mortality in this group of patients. And so, you know, there was a massive breakthrough. You know, you now had a drug compared to placebo where mortality was reduced by up to 31% in this group of patients. And since then, it's been astronomical, the amount of drug therapies that we have uh, uh, now available for our patients with the beta blocker trials in the late 90s and the turn of the millennium, uh, the aldosterone antagonists, sort of spinolactone and plerinone. And then, you know, to everybody's surprise, in 2014, in the Paradigm HF trial, I remember by this stage, we'd had almost, you know, more than 30 years of ACE inhibitors being the cornerstone of drug therapy for our patients with HFREF. 
uh, a drug called sacubutrivalsartan, a combination drug, an angiotensin neprilysin receptor inhibitor. So uh, first and currently still only in its class, drug showed superiority over ACE inhibitor therapy. And in truly serendipitous fashion, uh, drugs that we now talk about, the SGLT2 inhibitors or inhibitors of the sodium glucose co-transporters, uh, drugs I call the Viagra of heart failure therapy, so found by accident, essentially. And uh, these drugs have been shown in heart failure-specific trials to also have important benefits in patients with heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. So we started off with ACE inhibitors more than 30 years ago, beta blockers, aldosterone antagonists, of course, uh, and Tresto, we almost replacing ACE inhibitors. And then now we have SGLT2 inhibitors. Each of these drugs, in their own right, contributing to significant benefits in our patients. And now they're so-called, you know, you know, coined the four pillars or the foundational drugs for patients with heart failure. So that's where we are today. And what do the current guidelines tell us about how we should initiate or sequence the initiation of those medications and, and target doses? Well, the guidelines don't actually tell us how to sequence the, the drugs. I guess international guidelines, uh, both the European guidelines, the American guidelines, would suggest that you should always try to achieve the uh, uh, the doses that we achieved in the trials where we get the evidence for these drugs. So you should make an attempt to do that. Uh, current UK NICE guidelines, which are outdated, suggest that you should only prescribe the next uh, uh, drug uh, depending on the patient's symptoms, which are very, very subjective. So, uh, and they recommend prescribing these drugs in the order that they were tested in the clinical trial. So start with an ACE inhibitor. If a patient was symptomatic, then give a beta blocker, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the problem with that sort of system of giving drugs to patients is that we know, and there's abundant evidence from that, both from randomized clinical trials and in registry data, uh, and observational data that this can be a lengthy process. Patients can have a titration schedule for each one of these drug classes that can last up to 12 months. It is not beneficial for patients. So that's an old-fashioned way of doing things. So the guidelines tell us mainly give the drugs, get to the doses, but they don't tell us in what order to give the drugs. And why do you think patients often end up, um, perhaps as a result of those guidelines, on sub um, optimal doses of the four pillar medications. Why do you think that happens? Um, I guess there are a couple of factors. There are patient factors. I mean, the obvious ones being sort of non uh, uh, cardiac organ dysfunction. A patient develops renal impairment or hyperkalemia. That may cause anxiety uh, to the clinician and, of course, mm. the patient in prescribing those drug therapies. Um, uh, symptoms as well from patients. So those patient factors are real but they're not insurmountable. You know, we're now in the area of potassium binders for hyperkalemia. We're now in the area of better education about renal impairments and drugs certainly that we know can improve renal function. So rather than balk at the thought that a patient's creatinine has gone up slightly, you can persist. So the right education. What is probably more concerning is the clinician factors, actually. And I say clinician because this isn't just doctors, it is nurses. And those people who are directly involved in the management of patients with heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. And it's the inertia that often arises from seeing a patient who is apparently well or stable wherein there isn't that desire or incentive to either adjust their medication so that they are receiving better 
uh, a drug treatment and keep the patient where they are. So those two things contribute significantly, you know, to why a patient may stay on the same drug therapy for years where they could have been on better drug therapy thereby gaining more years as a consequence. Uh, so clinical, clinician inertia, patient factor, those things are there every day. And you mentioned in your uh, superb review paper that there may be some evidence that low doses of all four medications is probably better than high doses of, of one or two. Is that from trial data or, or registry data? How is that data put together? That's true. I mean, you see, there are a few principles about these drugs that we talked about. Now, first of all, we all accept that these drugs were used in a randomized fashion. Otherwise, we won't you know, have licenses for their prescriptions. So these drugs were used in a randomized fashion. We're tested in clinical trials, so we know they work. What is the paradigm shift, really, is the recognition that each of these drug classes, each of these drug classes have their own unique effect on the maladaptive processes that perpetuate the heart failure syndrome. So on their own, irrespective of background therapy, you know, so we know that. So mm. if we know that each of these drug classes work on their own, they've got their own rightful place as foundational drugs, then we should be prescribing them. Now, we know from certainly an excellent uh, study by Scott Solomon's group published in Lancet, I think last year, looked at you know the effect of comprehensive drug therapy, giving patients all four drugs compared to patients who were receiving less optimal therapy. And the potential that you could actually add up to six years uh, of life not event-free survival, but I mean, just life, that is mortality benefits. In a patient, say an average patient who was 65 years old could get six years, we know that. We've also known that patients who, from randomized trials and analysis of patients who received ICDs, for instance, now you know, you get an ICD because there's persistent left ventricular systolic dysfunction, which puts you at risk of significant ventricular arrhythmia and death. So these patients had ICDs implanted, ICDs or CRCDs. When you look at these patients, patients who received or who were receiving more classes of foundational drug therapy, so three to four, for instance, compared to those who were receiving one or two, there was a 36% additional mortality benefit of receiving each drug class. So these are patients who were receiving ICDs as well. And we also know from looking at modeling studies that patients who in an untreated population compared to those taking four drugs, for instance, that you could reduce mortality by up to 70%. So the evidence is there. Some of it randomized, some of it registry, some of it observational, but I think it's still very strong. And in your paper, as we move through the paper, we come on to, to figure three, where you propose a way of beginning these uh, these therapies in different patient groups with uh, with different Issues like, for example, uh, starting off with patients with good blood pressure compared to patients with low blood pressure, you call those option one and option two. Um, maybe you could talk us a little bit through um, that titration schedule that you mentioned in, in figure three and and how sort of how many visits it would take to get patients onto all four of those classes and uh, just give us a bit more detail about how you came up with that. Yeah, I mean, so so this is the heart failure transition schedule that you mentioned. That's Figure Three in the in the paper, and essentially, uh, there the are a couple of things that we looked at. Well, you know, the guidelines say that you should give your patients these drugs and make an assessment at the end of twelve weeks. Now, you know, there are various reasons why twelve weeks was selected, but it's in the guidelines. So, uh, you know, there's three months for you to get your patients from the moment you make a diagnosis up until the moment you make a reassessment. And 12 weeks sounds like a lot until you actually try to initiate that sort of drug treatment for your patients. 
Now, what we have done is made allowance for the things that would normally cause concern for patients and clinicians when you want to start them with drug therapy. And these are ambulatory patients I would like to mention. Now, patients who already have, you know, where there's no concern about their blood pressure, we start with a beta blocker and an SGLT2 inhibitor from day zero. An SGLT2 inhibitor because it's easy to start. There's no titration involved. And importantly, we know that there's benefit from initiating uh, SGLT2 inhibitors on a patient's kidney function, considering the drugs that we will want to initiate them on later on that may cause some insult to their kidneys. And beta blockers for the simple fact that, well, they have uh, in the early stages of a patient who has been diagnosed with HEPREP, you know, the risk, the big risk of arrhythmogenic uh, uh, events in them are high and giving them a beta blocker at the start is useful. Now, so that happens for whether or not your blood pressure was low at the start or your blood pressure was uh, normal at the start. We consider the blood pressure because we know that uh, ARNIs and Tresto, angiotensin receptor nebulizing inhibitors, can lower your blood pressure uh, to some extent. And so for that reason, in patients where there's that concern about their low blood pressure, we initiate an A2RB because it gives us the option to make a direct switch once a patient has been established on that drug therapy, as opposed to an ACE inhibitor where you are expected to have a washout period of anything from 36 to 48 hours. So everybody starts on a beta blocker and an SGLT2 inhibitor. And the main difference is that we give an ARN to patients whose blood pressure is stable and an A2RB for a patient where there's a concern about low blood pressure before switching, then add an MRA and then titrate over the next six weeks. Usually, typically, in our clinic, a patient will require about four visits, uh, maybe five visits with four or five blood tests as a, uh, as well. Uh, but we think it's a, you know, the burden to our patients in with this sort of system is low considering the long-term benefits for them going forward. And then you talk uh, in the figure as well about using diuretics judiciously just for symptoms of congestion rather than routinely. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know there's sometimes hesitation with frizomide and different kinds of diuretics that can be used. What's your practice? Absolutely. So, so diuretics don't lengthen a patient's life. They provide symptomatic relief. And so I think you should always, uh, it's a lot of education. Our patients are, you know, <laughs> get a lot of counseling and education, uh, luckily. And we give diuretics to control their symptoms, to maintain a state of euvolemia for our patients. But we also... Uh, educate our patients so that they know that they can either go up or go down. Like the summer months, for instance, a lot of our patients are reducing the doses of their diuretics or we're adjusting their fluid balance in keeping with the temperature and insensible losses which will happen so that patients don't have worsening renal function or become more symptomatic. And so it is empowering patients to be able to do that for themselves as well. You know, because actually patients actually have a lot more knowledge about their condition than we ever will do because they actually live it on a daily basis. So yes, we use diuretics, but we don't give diuretics just for the sake of it. It's not mm -hmm. a you know permanent prescription on a patient's drug chart. Some patients are not on diuretics because they don't need it. And, you know, there's evidence that you should, you know, it's one of the things that you can, there are patients on a polypharmacy anyway. So you want to cut down on drugs that they don't need. So we use diuretics to maintain euvolemia. We empower the patient so that they can know when to go up or go down in line with their fluid balance. And then you talk at the end of uh, that 12-week period, that three-month period, about having another conversation, maybe an MDT, including the patient, talking about whether they need devices, uh, EP studies, advanced heart failure therapies. Is there anything you want to expand on at, at the end of that 12 weeks? 
So you see, I always say that, you know, if you told a patient today that the ejection fraction was 25%, they've got heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. It's a significant event. You're telling them that they've got a condition which is life-limiting and that without therapy carries a very high mortality risk. You should be making a treatment plan for your patient. And so if the guidelines say over 12 weeks, you should be optitrating their drug therapy. Well, something has to happen at the end of 12 weeks. And that, at the end of 12 weeks, is a reassessment. You should be reassessing your patient with an echocardiogram or any cardiac imaging of your choice to determine what the ejection fraction is. Because as of today, that is the only uh, measure that sort of gives us an indication as to whether a patient may require device therapy. Device therapy, which is protective in form of defibrillator therapy. Device therapy, which may improve symptoms in terms of cardiac resynchronization therapy for those patients who are eligible for that, whether it's the synchrony on the ACGs and, of course, uh, and consequently on their echocardiograms. Some patients may have an arrhythmia because by your cardiac imaging, maybe an MRI, you may have determined that actually they haven't got a dilated cardiomyopathy. They haven't got a weird cardio. They've got an arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. Maybe atrial fibrillation is culpable for the LV dysfunction. And there's good evidence from studies like Castle AF that suggests that these patients may benefit from AF ablation. And so there's an incentive to pursue that. But there's obviously going to be some patients where natriuretic peptides are never suppressed throughout the journey of their therapies, where they continue to remain symptomatic, where they're just tethering on the edge continuously. And that is where you need to recognize early and start the conversation with your quaternary center, your transplant center, about whether or not your patients may be eligible for advanced therapies, uh, you know, mechanical heart support devices, or indeed heart transplantation if that was necessary. But you see, if that conversation doesn't happen at the end, then, well, your patient is sort of left in limbo. So what, what was the point of the titration? You are doing it for a reason. You see, and this is what, what I think has been lost in a lot of our management of heart failure patients. We just give drugs. And so what next? What next? You should always be asking what next for your patient. And MDT is an excellent way and it's recommended, you know, um, uh, in good heart failure practice for you to get everybody together to talk about these patients. And Henry, how are you implementing this locally um, at the at the CTC in terms of um, who's actually doing the work day to day? You mentioned a heart failure team approach. Can you expand yes. on that for others that are looking to implement something like this? Yeah, so, I mean, we have uh, a system where our patients are, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty straightforward. Uh, uh, I have a PowerPoint slide I show sometimes where we've got patients who are green, who are under the area of care of a primary heart failure team. That could be a heart failure nurse, a heart failure pharmacist, or the patient's primary GP. And then you've got patients who are in the secondary heart failure clinic. And so again, the nurse, the doctor, the cardiologist, et cetera, et cetera. But remember, it's the same patient. So the handshake between either green or red, because they're in red because they're you know receiving therapies they otherwise would not be able to get in primary care. For instance, parental iron, parental IV diuretics, if they needed them, device therapy, and all that sort of conversation. But there is a handshake in between, and that's the heart failure MDT. Because it's the same patient, Mr. Jones, was stable. He's been in the community. He had a diagnosis three years ago. His ejection fraction was 40%. It was on optimal medical therapy for that time, but then has become more recently symptomatic. That patient is brought to the MDT. We decide that they might require additional therapy. They come into a hospital heart failure clinic. Our team is made up of heart failure cardiologists, heart failure specialist nurses, those who run the heart failure clinics, 
well, in terms of heart failure nurses and those who work as acute heart failure nurses. So today, this morning, for instance, we've got heart failure nurses who are going to safari the wards to pick up patients who have come into hospital with a decompensated episode overnight. And then, of course, we've got the community heart failure team. We don't use the word discharge in our local health economy. We say transfer of care. So if LC came into hospital with decompensated heart failure, unfortunately, the length of stay is still in line with national averages here in at the CTC. We expect that they will probably be in hospital for anywhere between 9 and 11 days. Once they've been recompensated, they've been restarted on therapies, their care may be transferred to the community heart failure team. And similarly, patients who were, have become unwell in the community can come into, into the hospital via the MDT, depending on what their clinical status is. So it's a big team. We include heart failure pharmacists, we've got the palliative care team, and we've got GPs who attend our MDT. Well, it just means that it's robust. I always emphasize the fact that it's the same patient. It's the same patient, but, you know, we transfer their cares. Now, a patient becomes stable while going to the community heart failure clinic, and then six months and then 12 months, and the team says, well, you know, our caseload is heavy. You know, this patient has been stable. They've got a device. They're on all quadruple therapy. There's nothing else we're actually doing other than saying they're given the opportunity to self-refer back into the system, but their care is transferred back to the GP at that stage. So it's transferring of care at every stage of the patient's journey. Well, it's, it's certainly been um, a real pleasure to chat to you, uh, Dr. Savage, and the, the paper will be made open access if it's not already um, for a few weeks after the podcast comes out. Uh, we didn't even touch on some really, really cool tips about how to manage hyperkalemia, uh, how to manage renal function that goes off, low blood pressure symptoms, that kind of stuff, which is all in the paper as is the, the novel um, scoring system that you've uh, you guys have devised, the quad score, yeah, which, again, gives everybody an indication as to how well the patient is doing in terms of uh, those, those four pillars uh, being initiated and the, uh, the doses maximized as much as possible. So, everybody, I would encourage you to go and download the paper, give it a good read, uh, share it with your local teams, discuss it. And Dr. Savage, once again, just thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Fantastic. Thank you very much, James. Thank you.